Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Chathan Venkatesh, CEO and co-founder of Macrometa. In this interview, Chathan discusses his approach to solving the fundamental problems developers face with cloud-native apps and how the edge represents a new paradigm for how applications and services are going to be built going forward. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Packet, Seagate, Vapor.io, and Zenlayer. The featured sponsor of this episode of Over the Edge is Packet, an Equinix company. Packet is the leader in bare metal automation. They are on a mission to protect, connect, and power the digital world with developer-friendly physical infrastructure and a neutral, interconnected ecosystem that spans over 55 global markets. Learn more at packet.com. And now, please enjoy this interview between Chathan Venkatesh, CEO and co-founder of Macrometa, and your host, Matt Trefiro. Hi, everybody. This is Matt Trefiro. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Vapor.io and also the co-chair of the State of the Edge Project at the Linus Foundation. And I'm here today with Chathan Venkatesh, the CEO and co-founder of Macrometa. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, uh, Matt. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, you bet. You know, you and I have known each other for a few years, but I don't actually know how you got started in technology. Can you give us the origin story? Wow, uh, this is going to go back to the pre-Cambrian age. Uh, so how much time do you have? But you know, let's start. <laughs> as much as you want. <laughs> give me the okay, short version. Okay. Start. I'll, I'll give you the short, short version. Started as an engineer and over the course of maybe three startups really became an operations guy and you know, started really focused around building companies, building teams, building products, and just working with great people to sort of realize interesting opportunities built around some fundamental new innovation in data and infrastructure. So I've been in data infrastructure for you know almost 20 years now. My startups have all been in and around distributed data and distributed infrastructure in some form of fashion. So I like to joke that I've been solving the same problem for 20 years. Obviously, I've not been successful yet. Um, <laughs> but but and, and the other dimension of that, Matt, is that my life has always been about saving milliseconds here and there. So my last three companies really focused on sort of accelerating the data layer in traditional on-prem systems. You know, examples like if you're a bank and you're serving, you know, people online through a banking portal, people need to get to their customer records and transactions quickly. Yeah. And so we wrote software that accelerated that. One of the startups was very focused on accelerating virtual machines because virtual machines are very storage hungry. That was the last startup I did. And we were kind of the pioneers in what's now called the software-defined storage space. We wrote one of the first software-defined storage platforms for accelerating data. And now I'm sort of doing the same thing again with Macrometa, you know, sort of giving people their milliseconds What, what was the name of that, that platform? The last company is called Atlantis Computing. Started in 2006 and exited in 2016. Great. Great. And when did you found uh, Macrometa? Macrometa has been uh, pretty long in the tooth from a concept standpoint. Me and my co-founder started thinking about this problem in 2014. Which, which problem is it? But, so the problem really was, you know, when we started to think about the centralized architecture of the cloud and what that would look like in 10 years. And came to the conclusion that while the cloud is great, there's just a whole class of new things that people want to be able to do that the cloud is fundamentally not a sound platform for. If you want to deal with things that are time sensitive, the way we go about building clouds essentially means that they're too far away from where most people live. I mean, 
I don't know people who go and buy a house or rent an office saying, geez, I really want to be next to US West One because the latency is great. We buy our houses and we you know, put our offices where it's convenient for us. And so we started to think about, you know, what does that world look like where the cloud is more diffuse and closer to where users are? Mm-hmm. And as we sort of drilled into that problem for us, it fundamentally, you know, it really opened up as sort of this bad data problem that needed to be solved. So my co-founder, Durga, and I started to think about it, you know, 2014 onward, seriously. And by 2017, I think we had sort of put the thesis together on what a business might look like, what the technology might look like. And, you know, we, we got a round of funding from a great investor and we're off to the races. So that's kind of how it all came together. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about the problem. So, you know, if you could go beneath the surface a little and, and don't be afraid to be a little technical, this, this audience ranges, you know, business to technical. I mean, what, what is the problem? What can't I not do today or is very difficult to do today and why? And how are you solving it? Sure. So the, I think the biggest, it's so obvious that we don't realize it, but the biggest limitation of our current computing model is we can only do computing in two places. We can either do it on the device, like this laptop that I'm on or a phone, or we can do it in the data center. And there's a vast middle mile between these two places that really doesn't do strategic stuff. It just, you know, ships bits. <laughs> it's a middle thousand miles. <laughs> yeah, the middle thousand miles. Exactly. Yeah. And it doesn't do anything useful or interesting other than shuffling bits from one place to the other place. Yeah. And, you know, we think that's a really interesting place to bring not just computing, but what we call stateful computing, uh, because the state part of this computing problem is very, very important. As we sort of looked at edge in the last three, four years, everybody got really excited about the edge because especially the edge of the network where, you know, folks like CDNs have historically operated. Because they, could, they thought they could run computing over there in a more meaningful way where instead of just sort of, you know, inspecting packets and doing stateless things, we could potentially bring real applications over there. But applications need a robust and rich data infrastructure that allows you to, you know, depend on, on the data layer so that you can build sophisticated things with data. But the edge is very diffuse and distributed, unlike the cloud, which is in one location. And now suddenly you need to start thinking about how do you make this data layer reliable in a fully distributed way across potentially hundreds of locations that that data needs to be available and to be served from. So let's, let's try to put that in the context of a real application, even if it's made up, but, but just something that, that, that I could understand. Oh, I see. That's something that would be very difficult to do today or would be a bad user experience or a dangerous experience or something like that. Help me, help me understand what new use cases and applications are enabled by doing this, this widely distributed, low latency data? Maybe one of the most obvious ones is cybersecurity, right? Mm, okay. As we've brought uh, security to the perimeter of the network, they need to be able to detect bad actors, threats in real time, and then potentially take that information about what is a bad actor, what is a threat, and propagate that to other control points in the network become very, very important. Historically, cybersecurity has been centralized. We have an appliance, and that appliance sort of runs in its own little silo. Now we're starting to talk about cybersecurity as a network model, where at the edge of the network, you start to do threat detection and prevention. And that requires a a data platform and an underlying data substrate that can take that threat information, for example, and make it globally available instantly. And you know, by instantly, I mean at the speed of light and at the speed at which the network will let you. So that's interesting globally. It's not just distributed within a region or a, a nation. It's distributed globally. 
Exactly. Because threats are global and most applications are starting to become global. I mean, we live in a really interesting world where five people in a startup can build an application that potentially, you know, serves millions of users in a very quick, you know, point in time. And so we're, we've collapsed so much of infrastructure and made it so easy for people to build applications that security itself now needs to be a pro- programmatic API that can be embedded in these types of applications and run globally as a part of that. Now, does your, does your product look like a database? Yeah, it's a great question. So we're, we're actually an a infrastructure for developers. Our customers are you know, back-end developers and front-end developers who plumb their application into our global network and call APIs on us to essentially get data from one place to another place. And it's exposed as a database that looks like a conventional database so that programmatically it doesn't change the paradigm of how you build edge or cross-cloud applications for them. So yes. Is this SQL-based or is it some custom interface or what's the, what's the nature of the database? It's a NoSQL database. You know, SQL is very transaction-oriented. It's, it's great for sort of capturing data from what's called an in-place update standpoint. You know, in SQL, for example, you know, you have, say, a customer called Joe, their balance is 10 bucks now. They added five bucks to the account. Now the balance is 15. But the provenance of things like Joe's account balance was actually 10, an event called, you know, credit $5 happened, all those types of very rich metadata that form the basis for how you think about data flows and building applications and taking advantage of that don't exist in that SQL world. Yeah. So NoSQL provides a much better programming model for those types. And is this sort of a, in a what's the phrase to use, eventually consistent? No. This is where we, we really uh, distinguish our approach. Interesting. Uh, so databases have always sort of lived in this mutually exclusive one or the other world of being strictly consistent or eventually consistent. And if you're strictly consistent, you trade off latency and performance. Because you have to wait for everything to update. Exactly. Or, or in the eventually consistent world, which is really not really consistent, you know, you, 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 you really tra- you get the performance. Eventually be- maybe consistent. <laughs> eventually maybe consistent. Exactly. In fact, the definition says at some point, theoretically, everything should you know, right. kind of line up if you're willing to when wait. every node is done licking its wounds, uh, the data exactly. should be there. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, what, what we have done is essentially provided a programmatic model where developers can choose between strict consistency and better forms of consistency. Oh, that's interesting. So it's actually a continuum. So I can, I can declare, I want this data when it reaches a certain state. Correct. And that can be when, it, when I know it's consistent or when, like, I have the most recent read or something. Yeah, so there, we call it causal consistency. Oh, yeah, and, okay. and what it allows you to do is start to think about your problem and your data in two ways. What really needs strict consistency and just bound those things to trade off latency and performance for that strict consistency. But everything else really, you know, you, the nature of the data might be such that, you know, uh, a slightly less consistent model than strict consistency works for you. Uh, and so you get better performance by, getting a li- by being willing to accept a little bit of staleness in the data, but with guarantees that the data will always get consistent within 150 milliseconds, which is, frankly, the speed of the network from one end of the world to the other end. So our, our platform basically wraps the latency uh, between the two furthest points in our network as the bounding box mm. for guaranteeing consistency. Yeah, that's interesting. Interesting. And, you know, and when I, when I think of, you know, distributed databases and, you know, data ingestion and things like that, I think of like Cassandra and Kafka and things like that. And I, I think I heard that one of the distinctions in your business is you actually are a hosted platform. You actually are providing this as a service. Is that true? 
That's right. So we're completely managed service. There's no infrastructure to install. There's no software. It's completely serverless. It's, it's a combination of three or four things, actually, Matt. It's not just a database because it's the database that sits at 175 edge locations around the world, physically 10 milliseconds one way away from 80, 85% of the population of the world that has a network-connected device of some sort. So we've got physical proximity from where we're sitting with our POPs, but a database that can actually span a data, an actual logical database across all 175. So if you want to reach you know, 80% of the world with an application that you've built, you can build it on us, and we'll actually locate the data in 175 places, and everything will be kept in sync. So I've, I've replicated. You're replicating to all those locations? You're replicating data, okay. but it does it smartly. It can replicate in the context of the location. It can replicate in the context of the application. It can also replicate in the context of data regulation and things that are coming in now in the form of PII management and you know, data sovereignty management and things like that. So the replication is very intelligent in how it places data at different locations. But it's not just a database in that you need to stop using your database and use us because that's how databases have historically worked. It actually acts as a connector and a tier to existing databases in the cloud. So one of the things it does- Yeah, how do you do that? That's interesting. Yeah, one of the things that we've built is a connector and a protocol proxy for DynamoDB. So if you're a customer and you've built an application on Dynamo, and Dynamo is a great platform. It's one of the reasons people go to AWS. But Dynamo's got some big, you know, big weaknesses in the way it does replication. Yeah. Global tables, for example, it lets you only replicate to five regions in the, in the Amazon network. It's eventually consistent. It's slow. It's very latency high. You can use us as a way to essentially pull data from Dynamo, keep it at the edge, and serve it from there. And your application simply talks to us instead of talking to your Dynamo server. We speak Dynamo uh, protocol natively. So your application thinks it's talking to Dynamo in US West 1, but guess what? It's actually talking to uh, Macrometa in San Jose 3. Really? So you'll proxy the Dynamo API? We uh, proxy the Dynamo API. That is really... And are you doing kind of some sort of a near real-time sync with the Dynamo DB? Pretty much. Uh, there are different, again, you know, we, we look at cons- consistency and syncing as a continuum, right? So you can define what kind of a consistency model you want uh, for your data back in Dynamo. But the edge now becomes a place where you can read, write, mutate, query everything without can you actually proxy going- by S3 also? Uh, pretty, you know, it's coming soon. Let coming me put soon. it that way. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a neat approach to make it, you know, you say developer friendly, and I think of companies like Stripe, you know, with with just like we provide a service that you know it is enabling these these things that normal people encounter with, but it's focused on a developer. And I can just imagine a developer that's invested you know a year of his or her life in implementing on DynamoDB, saying this is just the fastest path to getting my data distributed. That's a that's a pretty neat model. So you know, the, it's and it's really cl- simple because the customer simply takes the developer takes an application and points it now to the edge uh, running a Macrometa. And you see, you know, the average latency drop for a full round trip that's stateful. You're going to query Dynamo, get a bunch of data, bring it back. Anywhere from 450 to 500 milliseconds per round trip on Dynamo down to under 50 milliseconds for, the, for what we call P99 percentile. So 99% of your requests will be under 50 milliseconds guaranteed. Yeah. And that changes the game from a user experience standpoint for most applications. It opens up now the ability to do more in a smaller unit of time. And, you know, now you start to see those low latency applications and ad serving and e-commerce and 
you know, in recommendations using AI, ML, right? Yeah. Really find the ideal place to open up to their full potential. Okay, so you've built this this global fabric for distributing data. How do you actually productize it? How do you wrap it into a product? How do customers consume it? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, and you know, when Durga and I originally envisioned the business, we thought we we're going to sort of this was going to be the cure for cancer for data. You know, this next new greatest database ever. You're never going to need anything after this. Nobody's you know, ever said that before. <laughs> but, and, and, you know, it, it, and reality hits when you go to market and start talking to customers. So as we talk to customers, they love the idea of low latency global distribution through a data fabric. But, you know, they've already got databases. They've already invested lots of money in applications that use X, Y, and Z database. And so that's where we started to realize that there were two fundamental pieces missing. One part of it was that data was not just sort of the data that sat in databases, but now the world was moving towards more of this event-driven model, where instead of client-server applications where the client would you know, ask the server to do something, we moved into an event-driven model where the client was sending events to a server, and the server would evaluate the event and do specific things based on the type of things you know, that the event described. For example, when you open up your Uber application on your phone, that's not a client-server app where the Uber mobile app is telling the server, hey, Matt is now online. Hey, you know, update database to say Matt requesting a ride. It's more like Matt is online, Matt is in this location, Matt is walking to in this particular direction. This is a stream of events going. That, then finally you click the button requesting an Uber and there's an you know, event that says Matt requests an, you know, requesting a ride. And you know, here's all the details packed into that event. And so th this is sort of the underpinning is this, uh, of this architecture is the data lake. You essentially stream events into a data lake and you build a pipeline that evaluates all these events and in real time takes actions on the same event, right? Uh, so an event like Matt is online triggers many things like, you know, find potential right, uh, drivers who are in the area and, you know, so on. You know, what, what, you know is Matt an Uber Gold customer? You know, and how does that potentially uh, mean, you know, in terms of what kind of a ride that we potentially offer? So it's all parallel, real-time, concurrent. And so this event-driven architecture is really important. So the second piece that we built into the product is a stream and an event processing system for real-time event-driven applications. So like a messaging platform? It's a messaging platform, but with a compute engine built into the messaging platform. We call it eventing functions. It's like AWS Lambda, but for events. Every time an event happens, you can fire off a very low latency function that can evaluate that event and take action on it in real time. And you write it like a serverless function in JavaScript, right? And so right. But, that, it, but it has access to a stateful database. It has access to a stateful <laughs> database. There you go. And that's the magic, right? Now, yeah. all those hard problems have gone. Uh, yeah, because you that's can actually super interesting. Build, yeah. And, and this really opened up just so many use cases for us. A couple of examples. One of the largest infrastructure software providers for the cloud in the world is our customer. And they built a real-time workload management and monitoring system on top of us that today you know, monitors about 100,000 workloads across the world in different clouds, in different locations and regions in real time. So each of these workloads has a little agent that's transmitting everything. From oh, that's interesting. It's not even kind of an end user use case. It's an infrastructure monitoring use case. It's a machine to machine use case. It's what we've done before, which was shipping logs. Yeah. But now the log, you know, is a rich event stream. It's no longer just this tar And it's file triggering, of is it triggering automated actions? Exactly. So we're evaluating everything from security information and performance of the workload 
And now there's AIML running on that edge location trying to predict if the workload is at risk of failing or underperforming so a preventive action can be taken for some of these critical workloads, right? So really interesting. Yeah, and, and the low latency distributed stateful data is what really makes that super powerful. Yeah, I totally get that because you think about the applications for serverless functions today, you know, whether like, you know, Cloudflare workers or Lambda functions, that's one of the big challenges. I mean, you even look at, at building, you know, uh, service-based applications on top of Kubernetes, like right. stateful data is tough. <laughs> which you wouldn't think so. It seems like the most basic problem in computer science, which is like we got to retain the data. Uh, but it turns out to be pretty, pretty nasty. So, you know, you think about how, how the internet is evolving, right? And there's companies like yours and sort of pioneered by the CDNs have placed, let's just call them servers for the sake of simplicity, place compute IT equipment servers in regional data centers. So data centers that serve you know, a, a, a hundred millisecond radius as opposed to a 500 millisecond radius or 50 millisecond radius, right? Yeah. And it sounds like like today you're in those types of locations. But as we know, there's actually, you know, a number of hops in between there and the end device, you know, including the last mile network, but all the, way, all the way up to that access network. And so I'm imagining that that as customers demanding even lower latencies from the database, that you'll be able to deliver on that by simply moving your servers farther out to the edge. And then do you also see a version of your services moving sort of on-prem in the way that like Amazon Outpost or Azure Stack are? Do you see like bridging that last mile with your data? Yeah, it's a great question. So today we sit pretty much where the CDNs sit. It's the same career hotels and, you know, peering points that CDNs are at. We're now moving through a couple of really interesting telecom partnerships right onto the 5G RAM. And that now puts us, you know, once 5G is out, literally five to 10 milliseconds away from most of these devices. Yeah. So, so let's talk about some other use cases. So, you know, one of the other really interesting ones is we've got a security vendor, cybersecurity vendor that does network threat detection. They've got, you know, tens of thousands of appliances in lots and lots of customer sites. And they're collecting all this network threat information in real time. What they used to do was send all of that into a giant data lake on, on the cloud, and you know, it was sort of this post-process model. All of this raw sewage of telemetry, you know, so to speak, has to land in the data lake, and then they run a lot of you know, batch-style computing to slice and dice that. Their time to insight, which is really big deal, right, is you know, we're talking seconds and minutes over here before you know, threats are actually detected. Yeah, which 1998 called, and they want their data, their data transformations back. Exactly. And you know, what ends up happening with us is now the edge becomes a place where you filter all of this data. And in the, in the security business, you're only interested in anomalies. You're not interested in normal patterns of data. So everything that looks normalized is discarded. And the 1% of interesting patterns that need to be actuated on, that need to be potentially processed further, only those things... You know, either go back in the cloud or get actuated from the edge itself. So if you want to block a particular IP address or something like that, instant block, update the other thousands of appliances in 150 milliseconds flat, and, you know, you've solved sort of a problem that historically would have cost these guys millions of dollars. And they're doing it through eight API calls using our platforms. So, you know, it, it, the combination of stateful data, an event-driven architecture on top of that for streams and messaging, along with eventing functions, which now provide stateful computation on data at rest as well as data motion. Very, very powerful for building, you know, truly applications that take advantage of the edge. 
Now, are, are, there any, are there any sort of, you know, end user, either business end user or consumer end user applications that are being implemented on your platform or that you've, you know, had advanced discussions about and feel is a, you're pretty confident about the use case? Yeah, you know, uh, we've got basically what we call here and now problems that customers have, you know, except for my telecom 5G customers who are sort of trying to intercept a three-year, uh, you know, or a five-year horizon from an end-stage standpoint. Everybody else is trying to solve problems there that are burning right now. Uh, we've got one of what is a very large e-commerce provider in the world. They have a real challenge synchronizing. Yeah, here's an example. If you were shopping online during the first few days of COVID, when we ran out of everything and people were, you know, outside with pitchforks and torches outside Costco, right? You remember those days? It feels like an ancient time, but it was only a few months back. You went online, you went to Instacart, you went to Costco.com, you ordered things and you got a barrage of emails saying product delayed, product delayed, product delayed. And that was because the inventory systems in the region and the, you know, the, set, the store weren't synchronized with the e-commerce platform. It's eventually consistent. And things like Kinesis, et cetera, don't provide, uh, Kafka don't provide the consistency model that when data changes in one location, you actually know that all the other places that the data is potentially consumed has also been you know, updated to have the same consistency. So you've got this e-commerce company that's basically solving what is a billion dollar a year problem in synchronizing data across locations and connecting you know, their backend systems to their storefront front-end systems using us as a data fabric for that. So Yeah, that's interesting. You know, in a previous life, I ran an e-commerce company. And one of the challenges we had is in presenting the final cart for checkout, we had to call a bunch of third-party APIs. So we had to calculate sales tax by calling Avalara. We had to calculate shipping by calling UPS. We do all these. And just in those, you know, ones of seconds that it took to call all those APIs and assemble all the results, we had cart abandonment. Yeah. And so I could see those companies saying, hey, we'd like to re-implement on the Macrometa platform so that our customers can make calls to us and we can deliver them in a region and we can deliver the answer in that region. That's, uh, that's pretty interesting. And there's another side to this problem, Matt, which is, and I'll use ad matching as an example over here. You know, in ad matching, you've got a 100 to 150 millisecond window, about 100 if you really want to you know, do this well where you need to fetch a cookie from the browser, from the user's browser, inspect the cookie, and based on you know, how rich the cookie description is of what your behavior is, if it's telling you boring things like, you know, here's a male, mid-40s, located in Redwood Shores, you know, California, that's not as interesting as saying, this guy bought camping gear last week, and you know, now you can start to do very interesting things with ad matching if you had a cookie that actually had that level of granular data. Challenge is you've got to go fetch the cookie and unpack it and then go and essentially match it to potential advertisers, do a bid and bidding time. on it, maybe yeah. even run an auction. Yeah. Run an auction in real time and then serve it. You've got 100 milliseconds to do this. Yeah. You can do distributed databases for this particular problem up until now. Uh, you've got to have build these silos of databases in each region. And it's a hard, hard problem for these guys. And they really are sort of, you know, 100 to 150 milliseconds. Now we've got an, an ad tech company that's doing this with very rich granular targeting at 50 milliseconds for, you know, P99 type of service. 99% of their customers can see a rich ad targeted at them, personalized, contextually relevant, and highly actionable from the end user standpoint because we're able to serve that in 50 milliseconds. And they can actually double the matching that they can do. The same infrastructure now allows them to get 2x more matching in the same unit of time. So, you know, these are all what I think are critical here and now problems. Which could be twice the revenue? Uh, Maybe more. uh, Maybe more. 
Super because, interesting. Yeah, because they're more highly specified and yeah, and maybe convert better. Yeah, that's really interesting. Two X or three X more revenue. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's look a little bit under the hood. So you know, when I think about your business, it sounds a little bit like a like a mini cloud provider. I mean, yes. <laughs> you can run, compute, and store data and do all these things. And I realize you're not competing with Amazon. You're complementary to the to the Amazons and the Azures and the Googles of the world. But when I think about all of the physical infrastructure that a cloud provider has, and I know you're a startup company and there's maybe some funding news we can talk about. Yeah. But how are you building a global network? Like, what are you putting in the field? What are you building? What are you renting? What are you buying? Like, how does this thing actually come together? Yeah, so, you know, we're a software company. First and foremost, uh, that's our core competence, building and running and operating a software platform. We don't do data centers. We can't build it. We don't have the cap, you know, the capitalization for that sort of thing. You guys, on the other hand, are vapor. You know, you guys are well capitalized and understand that part of it, you know, how to put capital to work in terms of actual data center and real estate and all of that fun stuff. We partner with cloud providers and buy capacity from them in a virtual cloud model. We're kind of like the virgin mobile of cloud in, in the sense that, you know, you've had MVNOs in the mobile space that never, you know, bought Spectrum directly from, from the government. Yeah, that's they a good bought, analogy. Yeah, they bought, you know, uh, slices of Spectrum from different providers around the world and created a virtual network and did value-added services on that. That's exactly our model. So the example that you used, you know, about in the very beginning of this interview, when you were saying that, you know, we don't put our offices next to U.S. West and U.S. East. I mean, that's one of the things that I point out. And I know this world is changing. You know, Amazon's announced Wavelength and things like that. But today, there are exactly two locations I can spawn an EC2 instance. So which cloud providers or what type of cloud provider are you actually building your infrastructure on if you can't name you know, the, the partners? Well, you, we use the big three uh, because in certain areas, they have actually data centers very close to an urban region. Sure. Uh, take the barrier, for example. You've got all the three who have footprints which are within 50 milliseconds of San Francisco and San Jose. Yeah, I mean, they have, the, they have their, their CDN pops, but I, I didn't know that you could actually run intelligent workloads. How, how are you doing that? AWS is, you know, Gilroy, for example, uh, one of them has something around Gilroy. Or Google has Los Angeles, right in the middle of Los Angeles County, right? Giant data center. So we use them, and then we couple that with some really smart uh, folks like DigitalOcean and Linode. I'm really excited about Linode. It's a plug for those guys because they've got fantastic infrastructure. And so we, we plumb that in, and then we go deeper into certain regions where potentially coverage is not as deeply capillated by working with regional cloud service providers and telecom companies. And so in specific parts of Asia-Pac, for example, uh, where there's a huge growth, we're working with the telecom provider, the incumbent telecom provider over there, and running in a co-location inside their data center, or if they have at the very minimum an IaaS type of a layer offering, and most of them do, uh, running OpenStack and stuff like that, we'll consume that from them. The important now, thing how, is- how do, you run, how do you run a workload on Amazon in Gilroy? Because that's not an option on my, my AWS you know, interface. I'm not sure if it's AWS that has a data center in Gilroy, but one of the three has a So, so you, would, you just basically take the assets of every cloud provider that you have access to and you pick and choose based on locations where you can run it. And so if Google's in this location and Linode's in another location and Amazon's in another location, you'll run... Exactly. We'll, uh, the example I'll use, have you, you're probably very familiar with this whole servers are cattle, not pets. Sure. Yeah. Well, we're saying clouds are cattle, not pets. And the whole idea is, is that when you write to Macrometa, Macrometa then becomes that runtime for you to schedule and orchestrate your app on any cloud, cross-cloud, edge or cloud, 
we'll figure out where the app and the data needs to be orchestrated, deployed, and available, and, and, and it'll completely flatten the uh, differences between all these different cloud providers for you. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so that's kind of how we're doing it. Our customers don't see any of the providers underneath us. They just see our APIs and read and write into that API. They see DynamoDB, for example, or Dynamo Mode, as we call that feature, and you know that's actually running. But on that's D- a pass through. That, that makes pass- sense. Yeah, yeah. But yeah that's that makes actually sense. might be a database that's emulating Dynamo running on GCP or Linode. <laughs> Interesting. Right? Uh, Interesting. We also okay. have yeah, yeah, yeah. Called, I get it. Yeah. yeah. We also have something called Kinesis Mode, which emulates Kinesis, and then we have Lambda Mode, which means you can take your Lambda or your container that's on EKS, ECS, and run it on us, and now that's running on anything else. So for me, the edge, one of the hidden parts of the edge that nobody really talks about is if you want multi-cloud, the edge is the place to do it. Because none of the cloud providers actually have any interest in multi-cloud. Why would they? They want you to run on their cloud, plumb into their APIs, and you know, uh, try and lock you in. But the edge provides a really interesting place for us to really abstract and arbitrate workloads across any cloud provider based on location, latency, and you know, you know, regulatory requirements that the customer has for those broker applications. So that's becoming a pretty powerful uh, pull for us. Yeah, that's interesting. We, we did a, a webinar for LF Edge, and one of the questions that came up was, if I need to run a workload, let's just say North America. And when I say North America, I mean not just the US, but Canada and Mexico. And uh, I want to run it in you know, ed- edge locations across multiple carriers. So this was a 5G question. And, and so the person said, look, that means I need to, you know, I need to figure out how to deploy it in Canada across multiple carriers, in the U.S. across multiple carriers, you know, and, and kind of down there. So the question is, are there projects where uh, people are trying to, you know, federate these telco cloud resources? And my answer is people are working on it from the bottom up and they're working on it from the top down. But it sounds like you've kind of emerged right in the middle. <laughs> yeah, you know, because we, we looked at the cloud and saw that as the right abstraction API, and we bring that API now to all these cloud providers. Maybe one contrast with Outpost, right? Outpost is giving you EC2 and Elastic Block Store, GBS, basically, you know, in, in, in this new form factor. What Outpost is not giving you, though, is the platform, and that's what really developers care about. Nobody really likes VMs and, you know, all of that stuff. They want to write to a database as a service, you know, DynamoDB. They want to consume a queue as a service, SQS. They want to do notifications through SNS. They want to run their you know, models on SageMaker. So the developer's job now really has become as a way to integrate and orchestrate across different third-party services and build just the you know, business logic that matters. All the un- undifferentiated lifting, you know, leave it to the cloud provider. What we're doing is now providing that model across any cloud and allowing developers to focus on building just their business logic without worrying about which cloud it runs on, which edge location it runs on, and how you know, hard problems in concurrent distributed programming like consistency and concurrency and latency are handled by providing a very deterministic model for that. Yeah, that makes sense. How do you charge for your services? It's very much, you know, a serverless model. Uh, our customers pay us in a sort of a, a hybrid context. They fundamentally pay for the amount of storage they're consuming on our network. So you, when you sign up and you deploy an application, you pick regions and locations of interest where you want your app to be available, your data to be available. And so you're paying fundamentally for the amount of storage that you're consuming in all those locations. The second thing that you're paying for is the number of API calls that result in a data request, reading, writing, querying the database, things like that. Uh, and, and into that API call, what we have done is we've rolled up all the 
the hairy stuff like network egress and grass fees. And we've also rolled up the function execution time into that. So essentially, it's a very simple two-dimensional model. Pay for the storage, pay for the number of API calls. And those things roll up all the hard bits. So Yeah, and those are good proxies for all the other things. They're good proxies for everything else. We bundle it up into a subscription, which allows them to buy some form of, you know, you you get a little bit of rate shaping if you buy the uh, subscription from us because it comes with uh, fixed allocations of storage and some fixed allocations of API calls. And you get a little bit of a discount if you buy an annual subscription, as an example. So very simple, easy for people to understand. It's, you, know, you don't need to get Corey Quinn to come and help you understand your bill. Uh, at least that's our hope over here. Yeah, exactly. So you, know, you, you and I met, oh, I'm going to say two and a half years ago, probably around the original State of the Edge project, or uh, maybe it was our Kinetic Edge Alliance, but it was a couple of years ago. And you know, I feel like the industry has gone from infancy to like late teenage years in two years. What has changed the most? I mean, first of all, are you noticing that? Do you feel, do you feel like there's a sudden, you know, convergence, like technology like yours is maturing, infrastructure like my company's is being deployed, the cloud providers are paying attention, 5G is real. What's the biggest change that you think is driving? Yeah. Uh, maybe there are three different parts of it that are all rapidly maturing in parallel and it's all converging towards some sort of a singularity that's going to create an explosion of value over here. That's how I kind of think about it. First part is capital. Capital is getting much smarter about this problem and why it matters. And that capital is sort of, you know, really getting deployed across the infrastructure layer as well as the smart software stacks that need to be able to build this. You know, in the first wave of startups that got funded, you kind of had a lot of companies that were repurposing Kubernetes as a way to run applications on the edge without fundamentally realizing that this was a data problem and you need to solve the data problem. The Kubernetes is undifferentiated stuff. Anyone can do that. So you had a lot of you know, startups and I think there were maybe two dozen startups that I was tracking at one point that all had a flavor of Kubernetes or containers or virtualization of some sort that ran a workload at the edge. With sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, was, that was the most common solution. That was the most common solution. solution. Yeah. And I think there are good niches where you can still solve some valuable problems, but it's not, you can't build a, there's no market around that. It's, it's not a big uh, addressable market. Capital's got really smart now in that capital is trying to fund big platforms that could potentially be AWS, the next AWS or the next Google and things like that. Uh, some of the capital sees mature companies like Cloudflare and Fastly as potentially where that, you know, actually gets built out. But I think, you know, they have some advantages, but they have fundamentally big disadvantages. Their POPs are built for CDN and content serving. And, you know, just at a very basic level, if I can dig a second, if you want to do stateful data, you're very memory intensive. And those guys are flash and storage intensive, their architectures. So there's a big retrofit that has to happen in their architectures to actually enable stateful computing. But I think there's an opportunity to partner over there for folks like them and companies like Nakramata that are trying to solve the data problem. So capital has gotten that smart in that way that they're picking platforms now that are comprehensively addressing both the data as well as the compute side of the problem. And that's, you know, kind of, I think a lot of, there was a, there was a little bit of a, a Jurassic uh, dinosaur event in the startup world in the last two years. Either companies pivoted away from the edge or they died because they couldn't get to the next set of milestones. But there was lots of great learnings, fundamentally great entrepreneurs who all came together. And we, I think the state of the edge was a great, was one of the many great places where a lot of collaboration and idea exchange happened. So the capital side is happening. Uh, the second part of it is customers are getting way smarter. That's the other part of it. I think when we started talking about the promise of the edge, 
two years or three years back, customers kind of scratched their head and said, I don't have a latency problem. You know, I don't really have that issue. I'm not a bank. I'm not trying to do low, you know, high frequency trading. What is fundamentally shifted now is that it's not, it's not seen as a latency problem, but it's, it's seen as a revenue loss or, or, or you know, it's something that's translating to real dollars and cents where it hurts these customers. Either they're losing customers or they're not able to maintain customers. I've got SaaS companies. For, they just simply want to use us in the trial of their application because, you know, 45% drop off in SaaS on first logon uh, during the trial because the application is too slow. Right. And so if you can meaningfully improve the performance of just that, your conversions into the paid platform go up. So customers. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a really good point where, you know, I still think we are still largely in a space where we're solutions looking for problems. But some of the problems have become very clear and some of the solutions line up with those very nicely in a way that that they didn't two and a half years ago. They didn't. No, that's right. Now, you, you mentioned three and I think we've talked about two. Yeah, so the second part is sort of the customers getting smart. Uh, the third part of it is the cloud. And, and this, is a, this is actually what's driving a lot of macro meta take up at this point in time. The ugly secret about the cloud is that it's easy to get in, but it's really hard to get out. And it's not a secret, but the secret part is this. If you are a company that has, say, for example, 100,000 monthly active users, and you've now got COVID and your application is really popular, and you've gone from 100,000 to 200 or 300,000 monthly active users, you would expect that the cost of the cloud would go up from 1x to 2x or maybe 3x and linear relationship with the, but the truth is it goes up, if you go from one to 200, the cost goes up five or seven x. Why is that? Well, fundamentally, because if you're using data underneath your platform, you're, you've got to pay for all those you know, read request units and write request units and your architecture matters a lot in the cloud. So developers are fundamentally suddenly realizing that sloppy coding really costs you a lot of money in the cloud because if you're not doing indexing right on DynamoDB, for example, or you know, the way you're turning on auto scale and the way it starts to spread your data out, you start to pay for read and write requests, which are fundamentally far more expensive than just the unit cost of the storage that you're consuming, right? And so uh, th- that's one part of the problem. The second part of it is most people, when they write a cloud native app, they're coming from this monolith world and they read and maybe watched a few things, a few smart people talk about you know, transitioning to microservices, but they haven't built an application really with scalability in mind. And so they need to go and re-architect the application. They need to fundamentally start thinking about you know, scalability from a different uh, standpoint. And that's going to cost you engineering costs and you know, time and all of those pieces. What we're doing is essentially allowing customers to sort of really get an aspirin for that particular problem got an underperforming application, you've got scalability and cost problems, use us as a way to use the edge to offload the cloud. Now, I've got an IoT customer. It's an IoT platform that serves things like smart locks and you know, stuff like that. Because people are staying at home, their usage... It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quote-unquote cloud-based platform. It's a cloud-based platform, okay, right? exactly. Because people are staying home, they're using all these IoT devices at home more. And so they're kind of going up 3x, 4x, 5x monthly active users, and their costs are going, you know, 10x, 15x, 19x. So the edge now becomes a place where you can soak, absorb, and process all of that at a fundamentally lower cost point than doing it in the cloud, especially with a platform like Macromatic. That's really interesting because I've always thought of the as the edge being more expensive. That's a the really interesting point of view. There's an inversion of yeah. things. The edge is expensive in certain, uh, you know, in certain parts. Storage is more expensive on the edge. A compute can be more expensive. So you do need what I call an edge-native architecture in your platform 
that's built for these types of things. And maybe I'll just double click into go really deep just for 30 seconds over here. Conventional databases usually have had tree data structures underneath them. And that makes it easy and, you know, and, and simple to solve some problems with querying, reading, and updating. But fundamentally, the bigger the tree, the more expensive to navigate it and get to the data that you're interested in. The macrometer architecture fundamentally thinks about the edge as a place to do transactions and IO processing very cheaply. So instead of a tree, it uses a log. Logs are simple structures, computationally very cheap. You simply keep dumping data to them. You write to the head of the log. And you know what we do at the background, though, is collapse the log into a tree-like structure in memory and query that instead. So there's a materialized view engine that essentially shows you the state of the log in real time, right? So that makes us about a hundred times cheaper than using a conventional database to do the same type of thing at the edge. You set, you, there are other trade-offs in that the data sets can't be as big as in the cloud. You know, in, 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 you've got infinite storage in the cloud, and you've got platforms like Dynamo that allow you to build infinitely sized databases. Sure. Macrometa is not meant for those you know, physical sizes of data sets. They're meant more for up to a petabyte of data. But if you're doing several petabytes into you know, larger data sets, the edge is not meant for that. So the edge native architecture to me is something that fundamentally addresses IO throughput and latency at the cost of storage, versus the cloud native architecture really you know, optimizes for cloud storage uh, footprint um, and makes the other pieces more expensive. Yeah, that's super interesting. Let's switch gears a little bit. I mean, what's what's Macrometa's relationship to open source? Do you use open source? Do you contribute to open source? How do you think about open source in the edge world? Uh, we, we've built our core technology completely on uh, proprietary secret sauce. We use uh, a particular technique for data distribution that's now sort of becoming better understood. It's called CRDTs, conflict-free replicated data types. It's a new way to think about data replication primitives and solving some hard problems with consistency and reliability of data when you replicate it. And, you know, the problem with CRDTs was that the information was available for many years. Lots of great papers were written on it. But it was like programming in assembly language. If you wanted to use CRDTs, first you had to get through what was very, very tough academic research level papers and really understand the concept. And then you needed to build everything you know, it's kind of like how God bakes a cake. You know, first he creates the Big Bang, creates the universe, you know, all of that. And at some point you get wheat, you know, it's almost like that with CRDTs. You know, you've got to start building all the fundamental tools and, you know, you know start to use them. We wanted to use CRDTs, but we wanted our customers to experience a regular database with all the magic of what CRDTs done encapsulated and hidden from them. So we wanted to provide a, a CRDT engine but hide and obfuscate and encapsulate all the complexity of CRDTs away from developers. So developers could use you know, existing languages, frameworks, and techniques in using a NoSQL database that they're already familiar with, with all of the responsibility of correctness, latency, and inconsistency and concurrency delegated to our layer. So all of that stuff that deals with CRDTs, that deals with reliable message delivery across hundreds of locations with low latency, all that is proprietary. We use, you know, certain things on top of that from an open source standpoint, you know, for orchestrating our system. We use Kubernetes, for example, and we've heavily modified Kubernetes over there. But we're now starting to really spend a lot of time thinking about parts of our stack that really should be open sourced and would help drive uh, the community and the ecosystem towards adopting multi-region architectures and driving this is the new way to build applications. So, you know, I, I, so I, my, my comment is stay tuned. We're going to have some announcements about what we're open sourcing in our platform in, in 2021. 
because we think we've got to stop building single region apps by default and instead start building multi-region, cross-region between core and cloud type of apps by default. And that might need someone like us to open up some parts of our platform and make it available for others to innovate on. Yeah, that's super interesting. So, so to sort of tie this up in a nice bow, you know, one of the things that people like you and I, the sort of OG of Edge, probably think about a lot, certainly I do, and I suspect you do, is, you know, if we had the opportunity to topple a couple of the dominoes, you know, faster than the others to accelerate the whole industry, I mean, what, what are the dominoes that you would topple? What are the things that you'd like to see happen that you think will just, you know, break open the next, the next level for the Edge industry? Uh, it's such a great question. Maybe there are two different ends of this problem. I think the first part of this is the telecom operators really need to supersize their thinking. Uh, a yeah, lot of I, them, boy, I agree with that. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. A, a lot yeah. of them are very much still in the deer in the headlights phase of this old thing. Yeah. Now, I've been fortunate that we're working with a handful of global telecom providers. One of our uh, partners, customers, is one of the biggest ones here in North America. And they've gone very deep. They started using us as an internal application platform first, and now starting to expose some 5G services on top of that. But in, in general, when you look at telecom partners, the easiest thing for them to do is think about 5G as, you know, oh, it's a faster pipe and we'll continue to do what we're doing. We're very familiar with that, you know, all of that. But if you're, if you're going to end up just as a faster pipe in the cloud, all the monetization and you know, value capture is going to happen you know, on the cloud. It's Which the, happened the last time around. And the telcos don't around. want that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think the telcos underestimate how sophisticated the developer experience needs to be. So a lot of telcos... Well, just the existence of a developer community. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of telcos are thinking to themselves, hey, you know, I'm going to allow customers to deploy a Docker container on my network. Right. The truth is, you know, who gives a shit? People don't want to use Docker containers. They want to use right. They want to use Amazon and Azure and GCP. <laughs> yeah, they want to use you know smart, rich, high-level services and build apps faster. Yeah. And so the, the so I, I think that you know the place where they're trying to intercept the market has passed by already in four years back. If you're not thinking serverless, if you're not thinking developer experience as a telecom operator, I think you're you know big time screwed. And, you know, truth is 99% of them don't get that because they're still trying to, you know, catch up with Amazon, what Amazon was, you know, seven or eight years back. So that's one right. part of it. U using OpenStack. Using OpenStack, exactly. <laughs> I was trying to not use the word OpenStack, but yeah. Yeah, if, if, if you, so that's one part of the thing I think is a, if a domino could flip, which was somehow magically they all woke up tomorrow and the bozo bit in their heads had flipped and they understood this part it's going to be a very different world in five years uh, in terms of how applications will be built, developed, and the relevance of telcos in that world would be very strategic versus, you know, just being fat and pipe. Yeah, well, and, and they certainly have an opportunity to be strategic. You know, it's, you know, the, the, I, I understand where the telcos are coming from, right? We're spending all this money investing in our network infrastructure upgrades. We can't get clobbered by OTT anymore. We can't be dumb bit pipes. But, you know, to your point, like you very quickly honed in on, we have to make something that developers want to use. And I think that that, you know, that DNA is not yet widespread in the telco industry, just understanding how important it is. I mean, you can't hire any, you know, you can, you can hire developers all day long that know how to use the major clouds and want to use the major clouds. Yeah. You can't find that many developers who want to, you know, do something bespoke. Exactly. So that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned two things. Yeah. Was that two or is there another one? Uh, there's maybe even three. I think the second place is CDNs. Hmm, okay. How so? Now, CDNs are either going to be roadkill or they're going to be the next big thing. 
And I think some platforms are better positioned than others are. But the business of shipping static data and just doing... Oh, they're all... They're, they're, that's not their business anymore. They all have security anymore. products, if not, you know, sort of serverless workload-y products uh, and, as exactly. well. Exactly. And, and I think they're making the right directions. But when everyone's got the same V8 JavaScript engine, you know, what's the differentiation, yeah. right? So well, and, and they don't have stateful distributed data. <laughs> they don't. And, and maybe Someone I'll, might point out. <laughs> yeah, they don't have stateful distributed data. Maybe the one prop I'll give is Cloudflare, I think, is really thinking about this the right way. They've got, well, I mean, you could, you could, your platform could potentially run on top of Cloudflare or StackPath or, you know, any of the CDNs. So it's a really interesting, so, yeah. So I, can, and I'm not going to ask you to speculate, but I'm going to speculate. You might be a really nice acquisition target for a CDN. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, te I'm teasing, but I think that really what I'm, what I'm trying to underscore there is how strategically important, you know, your early focus on, on a really tough problem. Like I said, I mean, still, you know, distributing a database across racks in a data center is hard. Right. Let alone distributed across racks across multiple data centers globally. <laughs> and it is, a, it, is a, it is a big, bad, hairy problem. And benefit of 20 years of trying to, you know, iteratively solve this problem, frankly. Like, you know, right, right, I, right. I know very little about anything else in the world, but between my co-founder and yeah, I. Yeah, the 20-year overnight success. I love it. We, I love we it, know Jayden. a lot about this little problem, but, you know, frankly, ask me about anything else, and I'm pretty dumb about it. So uh, that's the second piece of it. And I think the third part of this is the developer ecosystem. And, you know, developers are very iterative in expanding their mindset. I think there's a lot of falsehoods that I had to unpack about my own thinking about developers in the last few years. They're not a monolithic group that all get excited about technology. Most of them, frankly, they just want to do a job as easily as possible and they want their weekends back, you know. So the evolution of the surface at which they program continues to evolve. And, you know, serverless seems to be, you know, a, a great intersection point, but Serverless has, is, is still very crude and primitive uh, in, in, in the way obvious problems are not solvable inside the serverless model. And I think so that, that's sort of the third domino that needs to fall is that the tooling and the maturity of the serverless frameworks and how you build applications using serverless, and more importantly, understand the implications uh, that developers are very poor at, which is how their code actually, what, the, what does it cost to run your code? Right. That's something that developers have never really had to deal with, Right. You yeah. kind of just said, I need a server that's X big and, you know, Y amount of memory and, you know, you know and then, you know, Bob's your uncle. That was the world we live in. And now suddenly you wrote a really bad piece of code and it's going to cost you an extra, you know, million dollars a year because you screwed up your indexing, <laughs> you know. So, that, 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 so now suddenly there's this intersection and I'm going to steal Simon Wardley's, you know, view of this world where development and financial operations, you know, collide and out of that, you know, some sort of a new type of a developer emerges who's very, very uh, financially savvy about the code they write. That is really interesting. And it hurts my head a little bit. Although <laughs> I have had some discussions about, you know, one of the challenges that when you think a little abstractly about edge computing uh, is you have many more constraints. You know, the idea of the infinitely scalable cloud at a very, very low latency location doesn't really no. comport because you've got, you've got limited capacity. I mean, you know, you can only build data centers so, so big and you can only stick so many kilowatts of equipment in there. And so you've got definite constraints and we can see a world where there's going to be congestion for those resources during peak times. And the demand on those resources is going to be real time. So you can't have a human sitting there saying, well, you know, I just won't run this workload between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. You're going to have to have 
a machine and probably a machine learning based auction bidding system where the developer probably, you're right, is going to have to make a decision about how much am I willing to pay to run this workload now or at this latency or in this physical location? And we're going to have to build tooling to do that. But you're right. We're also going to have to build kind of a mindset that it's, it's about, you know, deploying code is deploying capital. That's really, it's a really interesting thought process. I think you put it so succinctly. I'm going to steal that, man. Deploying code is deploying capital. It really is in the cloud world. And, yeah. you know, in, in, a, in a really obvious You've got way, it. You got to put it, when you, when you do a Git push, you have to put it, what it's worth to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's actually an emerging area for VCs to look at, which is analyzing code to figure out what does it cost to run at scale. You know, one of the most obvious things is developers need to start thinking about is can I write this in a way that it, it costs 20% cheaper or it costs 30% cheaper, you know? And, you know, to your point, how do I schedule this in New York at peak time when I know that 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. is, you know, is peak ingestion ter- and, and cost in terms of being able to take advantage of that? Yeah, or, or, or trading off the cost of customer service for delivering a less than ideal user experience because yeah. the cost of running that workload would have exceeded your threshold. I mean, that's, there's going to be some really interesting knobs to turn. You know, obviously not with life critical or safety critical things, but, you know, like a game, like a free game, you know, Pokemon Go. Yeah. Like, you know, you'd say, okay, well, it's a free user. Uh, I'm just not going to pay more than nickel to run that workload. Exactly. You, you see it as a customer acquisition cost and you monetize them in different ways. Maybe they bought the power up now, so suddenly put them on a different latency uh, slab or something like that, right? That's true. I mean, I know my, my 11-year-old would pay for better better uh, ping speed on uh, Fortnite. So I think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that may be how we monetize 5G is yeah. we just sell, sell upgraded ping speeds. Yeah, micro, micro monetization, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, so Chathan, uh, thank you for joining us. This has been a, a terrific conversation. I really appreciate you sharing all these details and for being you know an early supporter of State of the Edge and just a great contributor to the community. Oh, thank you. Actually, I, I props to you, Matt, and the folks at Vapor. Uh, State of the Edge is just a really special thing. I think it all started with the State of the Edge. You guys actually named it and you know created a, uh, a community and allowed a lot of smart people to start coming out and supporting each other. So for me, it all started with State of the Edge. Up until then, there really was no edge as such. So you know, thank you for what, what you've been doing the last couple of years. That's awesome. Thanks, Chavin. <laughs> That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven. Vapor.io, Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, Zenlayer, and NetFoundry. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate five stars and review, and share the show with someone you know who might enjoy it. To get in touch with the show, email us at team at overtheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Packet, an Equinix company, makes infrastructure a competitive advantage for the leading companies of the world with globally available, developer-friendly bare metal and a neutral, interconnected ecosystem of networks, software, and solution partners. Packet is on a mission to protect, connect, and power the digital world with infrastructure that moves at software speed. Learn more and view open job listings at packet.com. Packet.com